Amen, amen. Thank you so much, worship team. You guys can all take a seat. Good morning. Did we just kick out? We got me. All right. Good morning to everybody. It's uh, great to say good morning at the beginning of our services again, right? Great to be back here at Brick Memorial, our new slash old home. Give it up. It's very good. Uh, As Chris said before, my name is Tom. I'm happy to be back here sharing with you today. Um, In our series on Matthew, this is the location where I did my first message, and depending on how this goes, possibly the location of my last. So let's have fun with it, all right? So those who have been coming here, you might know that we've been going through a series on Matthew that we call uh, As Told by a Scoundrel. This is uh, in reference to Matthew, who was a tax collector. And um, we went through a series on identity in Christ, and now we're uh, going through a series on his blessings, and that brings us to Matthew chapter 5, uh, known commonly as the Sermon on the Mount. All right, and just to recap how we got here, in Matthew chapter 4, we went over how Jesus was out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Right, he turns him aside and then, and then goes into Galilee, where he starts uh, preaching, starts healing, starts gathering up his disciples, and he quickly builds up a large following, people coming from all over to see the great teacher and the promised you know, Messiah and to hear him speak. And that is how we get to Matthew chapter 5, where one day he's by the Sea of Galilee, wants to teach to his disciples, and huge crowds are coming in around him. So then we pick it up in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read that together. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And this next section, starting in verse 3, is labeled the Beatitudes. All right, the Beatitudes, starting Matthew 5, verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So these are the start. There's more Beatitudes coming later. We'll talk about those in later weeks. But uh, these are the start of the Beatitudes. So since we're studying them, it might behoove us to ask, what's a Beatitude? Like, can anyone else be honest in here enough like me and say, I actually don't know what the word beatitude means? Anybody? Anybody hands? We got some liars in church today, but it's okay. So, so you know, be honest about it. I mean, most of my adult life, I would have said the same thing. It's one of those, like, things where you pretend you know what it means. Like, oh, yeah, the beatitudes, of course, of the Matthew beatitudes, some of the best, some of the finest beatitudes there. And you have no idea what that means. It's not a word that you use in daily life. But just so that we're all on the same page here, And what a beatitude is, it's not really the words Jesus spoke. It comes from a later translation. So about four centuries later, when they translated Matthew 5 into Latin, each of those verses, starting in verse 3, began with the word beati, B-E-A-T-I, beati, which translates to happy, rich, or blessed. And it doesn't just mean describing something as happy, rich, or blessed. It actually applies to the people to which that applies. So the, the blessed ones are the beati, the happy, rich, and blessed. Right, and from that term, they coined the term beatitudo, right, which is a state of blessedness. And then they later put that as the section header on Matthew chapter 5. So now you know. And G.I. Joe told me knowing is half the battle. So we're going to look at the first four beatitudes today that he listed in Matthew chapter 5. And it's important to note that he's, these groups that he says are the blessed ones, the beati of his kingdom, these groups are the ones that reflect the characteristics of his kingdom and not the ones that the world generally elevates or glorifies. Right? He's saying 
that the keys to receiving happiness, richness, and blessings of his kingdom are to die to self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-promotion, self-satisfaction, and the constant pursuit of elevating ourselves. So we're going to look at each of these Beatitudes individually, but before we do that, I would like us to consider how our current society constantly pulls us in the opposite direction, right? Pulls us away from his blessings and towards trying to bless ourselves, right? It pulls us away from his kingdom and towards trying to seek our own. Because I think if we're all being honest about it, uh, we can admit that we live in a self-centered, self-righteous, self-promoting society. One that's always looking to build ourselves up and our own kingdoms up through our own power and not looking towards him. This has always been a characteristic of man, right? but it has been particularly elevated, amplified, and prevalent in our current society in uh, part because we have the tools with which to do so. And particularly, we have the technology, and in particular, social media, at which this accelerates and blows up. And if we want to trace that back to where this really takes a step up, the self-amplification of our society, we can go back to about 2006. All right, so what happens in 2006? Right, Facebook becomes available to everyone. Right, it's no longer on college campuses. Everyone from preteens to grandmas can get on there and use it, right, and put out the things about themselves, their every half-baked thought, every picture of their family, their dog, their every meal they eat. It's available to everyone. And social media use, which was already present, blows up. Right, it blows up, and it's aided by an important technological invention that was released in 2007. Anybody want to guess what the important piece of technology that came out in 2007 was? IPhone. The iPhone. Exactly, the iPhone. We all have them in your pockets right now. This little thing comes out in 2007, and it really helps kick everything into gear. It makes it easier than ever to access all these platforms, all right? And, uh, you know, the, the social media blows up. It's not just Facebook. It's Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok, and there's probably a thousand others I don't even know about. But it blows up, and access is never further away than our pockets. We become obsessed with this. We use it more and more, project more and more of our lives on it. And fortunately for us, it comes with a camera. All right? It comes with a camera, so we never have to wait more than a second to snap those pictures of our families and our dogs and our meals, and most importantly, ourselves, right? And so we usher in the age of the selfie, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know the headline's pretty snarky, but it's true, all right? By 2013, by 2013, selfies have become the most popular type of photo that we took, more popular than your families and your food and your dogs. We love taking pictures of ourselves, and for our youth, you may not believe this because you've only grown up in this era, but there was a time in life when people used to shy away from pictures being taken of themselves. And it's amazing to think about it. Like, oh no, please. Oh no, please. Now it's like, I need a special stick so I can take pictures of myself at every conceivable angle. The world needs to see this immediately. All right? So th that's how self-obsessed we've gotten. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's become so bad that, that um, selfie became Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year by 2013, right? It's all about the selfies, and it's especially present in our young people. So if we look at the 2020 data, um, U.S. millennials, who at the time were 18 to 34 years old, they were expected to take more than 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. 25,000, all right? That adds up to 2,400 
lifetime hours taking selfies. So to do the math, that's 100 straight days, 24-7, doing nothing but snapping pictures of yourself. I'm sure then to be photo edited later and put online. All right, that breaks down to 38 hours a year taking selfies, about a full work week, all right? And just for comparison, that same group, to see how that works out, that same group spends more time taking selfies than they do managing their personal finances, searching and interviewing for new jobs, attending or hosting social events, or even walking. That's right, millennials, you're spending more time taking pictures of yourselves than walking. All right, this is a shocking amount of self-absorption, self-promotion, and self-focus. All right, it's, it's kind of funny to laugh at, but it's, but it's true. Uh, so much so that I am convinced, and this is just my hypothesis, but I am convinced that if the servant on the mount happened today, in, our, in today, same conditions, Messiah that we've all been waiting for, famous teacher, healer, someone we've all been looking for, people coming by the thousands to hang on his every word, you know you know there would be people down front in their camera fixed right on their face, be like, yo, I'm at the mountain with Jesus, y'all, check me out. Make sure to click that like button and hit subscribe down below. I'm gonna be posting videos all throughout the sermon. Like, you know that would happen <laughs> because we become, become such a self-promoting, self-obsessed society. And as this has amplified and accelerated, we have to ask, is it working? All right, as we try to grab more of our kingdom amplify ourselves, put ourselves out there to snatch it all for ourselves. Is it working? Are we a happier, more peaceful, more well-adjusted society in this age? And no spoilers, but I think you know that the answer is we are not. All right? In the age of selfies, which unfortunately most of our youth have only grown up in, in this current age, we have become a more anxious, more depressed, sadly a more suicidal, more opioid-addicted, more miserable society than we've been. This is sad but true, and I wish this was only my opinion, but the facts back it up. And if we look at the data, what it shows particularly for our younger age groups, particularly for our younger age groups from 2005, when this kicks up, to 2017, amongst 12 to 17-year-olds, that's our youth, amongst 12 to 17-year-olds, rates of depression have increased 52%, and that's pre-COVID, all right? And in the next age group, 18 to 25 years old from 2009 to 2017, depression rates jumped 63%, all right? And it gets worse from there, all right? The rates of suicidal-related thoughts and outcomes increased 47% from 08 to 2017, all right? And I will tell you that every single one of these numbers has jumped up dramatically during COVID. And by 2019, there were an estimated 51.5 million U.S. adults with diagnosed mental illness. That's over 20%. That's over one in five. Look around the room. There are more than five adults here. Somebody around you is going through this. All right? It is utterly prevalent in our society. And it's not just the gradual way of things. Things are going up at the same rate. If we look at some of these graphic representations of this, we'll see rates have gone up at a significantly higher rate than they used to. Depression amongst 12 to 17-year-olds. Sadly, self-harm has gone up among our kids. Hospitalizations for kids harming themselves have jumped up in recent years. And the biggest group to jump up was 10 to 14-year-old females. 10 to 14-year-old girls hurting themselves. Like, out of control. I move the slide, if you could. And then finally, suicide. Suicides, you see those curves, they're not just going along a straight line or just steady incline, they're jumping up. They're jumping up. We are becoming a sadder, more anxious, more depressed society in the age 
where we're amplifying ourselves the most. All right, and I'm not here just to say, you know, social media is the root of all evil, all right, and, you know, particularly for our youth. Like, when they ask you, when you go home, you know, what did you t- learn about in church today? I don't want you to say, oh, I learned that selfies are evil and social media is the devil. Like, that is not what I'm saying. Like, it's not entirely what I'm saying, right? So, but I'm just saying that these are the tools that we use to amplify ourselves and to try to promote ourselves and force our own kingdom apart from God, and they are not working, right? They're clearly not working, and they're not working because they have the wrong foundation at their center, right? We cannot bless ourselves. We have to understand that. We cannot bless ourselves, right? No matter how much we focus on ourselves, right? How much we try to build ourselves up apart from him, it will never work, right? All blessings flow from his power and his authority. And what he's telling us here in Matthew, what he's telling us is that inflating ourselves is not what causes those blessings to flow, Right? It is not what paths, paves the path to our salvation or to the inheritance of his kingdom. Right? So we've talked about what doesn't work. But I want to take a minute now and focus on what does work. Right? What does work? What has God laid out for us, particularly in Matthew 5? What does path, pave the path to our salvation and his blessings that I would say we so desperately need now more than ever? And so that brings us back to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. The first Beatitude, number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This one is about dying to self-sufficiency. We have to consider what does poor in spirit mean. Poor in spirit, not so much about poverty, but about recognizing your sin, recognizing your insufficiency, recognizing your spiritual neediness, that you don't have everything that you need, you can't do everything, you can't save yourself, recognizing your spiritual neediness and need for a savior, right? And this is illustrated really well uh, in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke chapter uh, 18, verses 9 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, Luke 18, and uh, we're going to go to next. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So we're going to start reading in verse 9. Verse 9 states, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Kind of sound like people you know these days, So to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee uh, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, uh, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So if you remember nothing else, we could probably sum up the four Beatitudes we're going to go over with this line. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And a good contrast to this, sort of a modern-day uh, parallel I've seen between the Pharisees, I would suggest are doctors. All right? uh, for those of you who don't know me, as you're currently finding out, I'm not a professional preacher. All right? I am actually a doctor by trade. And I will tell you, being in that profession, I do not see a ton of spiritual poverty amongst doctors. Let me be honest. These, these are a, bu- a group of people who are generally pretty smart, hardworking, 
highly motivated, high-achieving people who have achieved success at every level on their own, uh, thinking they're doing it all on their own, and not likely to recognize their need for much of anything else, not re likely recognizing their lack, all right? And consequently, there's not a lot of faith amongst doctors, to be quite honest with you, at least not the ones I've encountered in my experience. And because of that, they are not likely to experience the kingdom of heaven because the first beatitude is really just a statement of salvation. He's saying, you know, if you, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you recognize that you are not all sufficient on your own, that you are sinful and that you are needful of a savior, right, that's the main step in salvation. Like if you recognize beatitude one, I mean, I want you to pay attention to the other beatitudes, but if you recognize beatitude one, acknowledge that and accept that, like you're gonna be okay. That's salvation, all right? So blessed are the poor in spirit. And what's the blessing? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first beatitude. And the second one plays right off of it. So if we look at the second beatitude in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this one is about dying to self-satisfaction. All right? It's, it's not the typical mourning that we think of. Uh, you know, somebody dies and you're sad about it. God comforts you in those situations as well. But it's more about mourning over your sin, right? Not being satisfied yourself, having that bother you. So if you want to think of one and two together, Beatitude 1 is sort of like an intellectual realization that you're spiritually poor, that you're needy, and that you're sinful. Beatitude 2 is an emotional response to the first one. Like, first you have to realize that you're sinful and that you're needful, and second, that actually has to bother you, right? That actually has to get to you, right? You have to, he wants you to be like the tax collector, in the temple, who didn't just say, yeah, I sin a bunch, but you know, God's good, so it's not that big a deal. Everybody sins. Right? He doesn't want you to recognize your sin and just brush it off. He wants you to be like the tax collector saying, God, take mercy on me. He's like, God, I am a sinner. I can't stand that I sin. I hate the sin in my life. I want it out, and I need your strength to get it out. All right? And he's saying if you do that, if you mourn over that sin, what is, what's the promise in the Beatitude? Comfort is coming. All right, comfort is coming. He's saying if you, if you mourn enough about it to want to change, let's say that anger that you're holding on to that's ripping apart your family, he's saying, hey, you mourn about that, I'm going to soften your heart. Comfort is coming. Or that addiction that you can't break. So if you seek me in mourning over that, he's saying, I'm going to provide comfort, I'm going to free you from its hold. All right, comfort is coming for those who mourn it. And so that's, that's beatitude number two. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. All right? And that leads us to beatitude number three. It's a big one. So beatitude number three, Matthew 5, 5. It states, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. All right? And this one is about dying to our self-absorption, something that I think is increasingly difficult in the society of self-promotion. Right? It says, blessed are, those, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's important to know here that meekness is not weakness. It's probably the only rhyme I'll attempt during the message. Meekness is not weakness. He's not saying, blessed are the doormats, all right? Blessed are the passive who do nothing, all right? The meekness that he's talking about is more strength under control, all right? The Greek word praus that they use to describe it, they say an adequate representation would be a horse that's been trained to do a job. Big, strong, powerful animal, but he's humbly submitted to the will of his master, and he does his job, and he's blessed with oats and a stable and cared for. 
as opposed to the wild horse who's always looking out for himself, smashing through gates, running out into the wilderness into starvation and being hunted. Right? It's not weakness. It's not passivity. It's strength under control, humbly submitted to God. So basically, that meekness, that power under control, means those two things. Two things. One, refusal to inflate our own self-estimation, not always pumping ourselves up, right? And two, hesitance to assert ourselves for ourselves, not lashing out at the slightest offense, right? Not coming down on anybody who thinks differently than us or opposes us because we're so great and we need to conquer them. Not lashing out. He's saying not overestimating yourself, thinking yourself more highly than you ought, and not asserting yourselves for the purpose of yourselves rather than for God. And we have some good examples of this in the Bible. First and foremost, Jesus was meek. All right, all the power in the world, all right, but was totally submitted to his Father's will. All right, didn't take himself off the cross. He said, not my will, but yours be done. All right, and in that meekness, in that humble submission to the Father's will, he exerted great power, even power over death. All right, but it's not just from Jesus that we can see these examples. Another one that we see is our friend Moses. We just finished a series on Exodus not too long ago. Moses was a very meek man. In fact, Numbers 12 describes him as the most meek man on earth. All right? It's a pretty good title to have. But um, some of the versions use meek, some other versions use humble. But we're going to look at Numbers 12 right now. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 1. And in this case, we're going to see how Moses handles it when people start talking trash about him and his family. All right? So Moses, tw- uh, Moses 12, yeah. Numbers 12, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 1 starts out as so. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Right, so if I could stop here for a second, this is the most dad thing that I could, consi- I could think of God doing, right? Like he hears the kids causing trouble in the background. He's like, hey, you three out here now, all right? And I can only picture Aaron and Miriam as like those six and seven-year-old kids like, man, doing that little slow, I'm getting in trouble, kid walk takes like, like, like an hour to go 10 feet. Like you know that that's the only way I can see them because they know dad is angry, all right? So we pick it up in verse 5. So, then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent, summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Notice how he describes him. As my faithful servant Moses. Not as Moses, the guy who props himself up online and has the best pictures and the best profile, right? Not Moses, the guy who conquers everybody and slaps down everyone who speaks against him or asserts himself constantly or, you know, flies off the handle, right? Moses, my faithful servant. And what does he say? What power does he wield through that? Verse 8, he says, With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Like, man! Like, God came down and laid the smack down on Moses because he's such a meek man. Now, what did Moses do when people started talking bad about his wife? Like, did they lash out at him? You know, did he post nasty stuff about him online? All right? Did he go like Will Smith? Like, keep my wife's name out your mouth. Like, no. 
No, no, he didn't do anything. He was a meek man, all right? He was a meek man, submitted to God, and God came down and handled business, right? Just, just for good measure, God struck Miriam with leprosy for a week after this, right? Like, God handled Moses' business because he was a meek and faithful servant, all right? So, like, meekness is not weakness. Like, when God speaks to you face to face because of your meekness, that's power, all right? When God comes down on a cloud to smack down people who are talking trash about your family, that is power. Meekness is not weakness. It's humbly submitting to God and allowing his power and his authority to work in your life. And we can look at some current examples of this. How about meekness in your marriage? All right? Instead of trying to assert yourself constantly, control everything, all right? how about submitting to God's authority and see if he doesn't provide that power through you to strengthen, build up that marriage, and improve it in ways that you couldn't? Or how about meekness in your professional life? All right, instead of doing anything and everything to get ahead or plow forward, letting nothing stop you on your path of destruction to that you know, advancement that you've laid out for yourself, how about submitting to God's plan for your career, as Moses did? Right? This was not Moses' career plan. He didn't want to do all the stuff God had him do, but he humbly submitted to the Father's plan, and great power was wielded through that. All right, so in your career paths, you can do that as well. Or how about meekness in your life struggles? I know it's kind of weird to think, all right, I'm struggling. Why do I need to be more meek? I'm already down. But you know, think about it. Meekness in your life struggles. You know, like instead of thinking that you're just going to overcome all those addictions on your own through your own efforts, all right, or your mental health struggles, overcome those by artificially propping yourselves up online or maybe sending some of those questionable texts or pictures to that person whose you know, who's attention that you want because yeah, that's going to make you feel better. You're doing anything and everything you can to sort of grab that joy, grab that kingdom on your own. How about instead meekly admitting your struggles, right? Humbling yourself to rely on God and watching his power work through you to break that addiction, right? To overcome those mental health struggles, all right? And see that freedom and joy that you're not achieving on your own, all right? Uh, and this particular one I, I've seen work in my life as well. Uh, some of you uh, may know and may have met my dad. Um, what you may not know is that uh, in his youth, and into my youth, uh, my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, he struggled with alcoholism. It wasn't sort of like the face down in the ditch kind of guy. Right? He had a job. He had a family. <clears throat> but he could not break that, that, uh, that grip that alcohol had on, had on him. And it had effects on his life. You know, after you crash a few cars, uh, you know, after you enter into and ultimately have a failed and ill-advised first marriage, right? and when you, you get to a point in your life where you've got three kids and they're still getting woken up in the morning to drive you to work because you lost your license, some things have to change. Right? Some things have to change, but it wasn't happening on his own. Right? Thinking he could handle it or thinking that it wasn't a big deal or thinking that he was just going to work through it because he's successful in other parts of his life, it wasn't working. Not until he got meek. Not until he got humbled. All right? When he got, finally got saved, it was a very important first step. And then when a neighbor gave him a card for a counselor to go see, he thought he was going to get alcohol and drug counseling. The counselor happened to be a local pastor around here. His name was Ron Fraser. Some of you may know him. He's a good guy. <clears throat> he says when he went to meet with that counselor, he was expecting maybe some tips on, you know, I'll do this and do that and I'll avoid drinking. He said when he met with them, they barely talked about alcohol at all. He said he talked with him about where is your life with Jesus? Where, what part is God playing in your life? Where do you need to submit to him to break this hold that alcohol has on you? Right? It was all about his relationship in relation to the Father, humbly submitting to him, and, and only after that did he inherit 
that portion of the kingdom here on earth. Only after that did, it, did alcohol break its did he, did he break the hold of alcohol on him right, and blessed him with that kingdom here on earth, blessed him with family, with a good life, with a heart for God. All right. So it wasn't until he got meek that that power was revealed through him. So blessed are the meek. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. They will inherit God's kingdom that he has for you on earth. So that's a little bit about meekness. All right. And then finally, we come to the fourth beatitude. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. All right. This one is about dying to your own self-righteousness. Right? Again, a tough thing in our current society that feels like there ain't no righteousness like self-righteousness. Right? It's all out there. It's being broadcast. It's empowering people. Self-righteousness. God's saying that is not the way. He's saying blessed are those who are empty, not full, not full of themselves or full of self-righteousness, but spiritually discontent. People who want more of him, less of themselves, but hunger and thirst for more of him. Blessed are those people. All right, and whenever I hear this uh, verse, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it makes me think of an ancient Chinese proverb, which I'd like to say that I learned from my extensive study of world history and philosophies, but really I learned it from watching the movie Avatar. All right, don't judge. From watching the movie Avatar, Blue People, Aliens, it's a good one. So there's a point in the movie Avatar when Jake Sully, the main character in his Avatar body, uh, comes and is brought before the whole clan of blue alien people. And he's trying to infiltrate that clan, so he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm here to learn from you. I want to I soak up what you got. All right? And the uh, chief of that clan is sort of sizing him up and gives him a very important and wise piece of advice. And we're going to play that video clip for you right now. What are you called? Judge Sully. Why did you come to us? Came to learn. We have tried to teach other sky people. It is hard to fill a cup which is already full. So it is hard to fill a cup that is already full. All right, what does that mean? So we got a little bit of an illustration here. I know I'm kind of down low, but you kind of see. We got our cup, all right? And here we have the life-giving water of his happiness, his richness, and his blessings, right? This was liquid beatitudo, all right? Beati juice, if you will. All right, this is the stuff we want, the blessings, the happiness, the richness from him. And this is our vessel with which to accept it, with which to receive it, all right? And we act... Like, yeah, we want to be full. I want to be full of this. I want all Beati juice. But in reality, we also have a lot of this. This is us. The brown, sugary, sticky mess of us. All right? And what do we do? We say, you know, hey, I want, I want to be filled up with this pure, life-giving water. But first, you know, there's really these things i got to take care of. You know, i got this job. And I'm going to spend most of my time focused on my career, pretty much all my time. I'll get to you later. But, you know, really got to make a lot of room for this. But, you know... Now that we got that taken care of, you know, I'll take some of that blessing now, right? But actually, actually before that, I got all this anger I'm holding on to, you know, all these grudges, and I really got to tend to them. They're going to take up a lot of my emotional time, so I'm really going to have to make a lot of room for those things because I'm not ready to give them up until they know that they were wrong and I was right. All right, so now, but now that we got the important stuff taken care of, 
how about some of that blessing, right? Let's bring on some of that blessing. But actually, actually, before we get into that, I really got to build myself up online. I got to make sure that I look good. My selfies are better than everybody else's selfies. I get that attention from that person I've been looking for attention for. And that's really going to spend a lot of my time because I'm going to be just like scrolling and 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 scrolling. And it's really important, so I really got to make some room for that. All right. So, but now, now we got some room left. We got some room left. But now, now, now I'll take those blessings, all right? So let's get some of those blessings in. Oh, actually, actually, before you get into that, I wasn't going to mention it, but I got this sin I've been hanging on to, you know, and I really don't want to give it up yet. I mean, I know it's wrong, but, you know, and I'm not ready to give it up. It's going to take up a lot of my time sinning and then hiding that sin. So, you know, we just got to make some room for that, all right? But now, but now I'm really, really ready. I want that life water. I want that biati juice. I want that blessing. But I actually, actually, before we do that, I got political views that I really need to hold on to pretty darn strongly. And not only, like, are they my political views, they're the only political views. And not only do I have to, like, promote them and speak them louder than I ever talk about you, right? But, yeah, I got to find everybody else who disagrees with that and let them know that they're terrible human beings. So, yeah, that's going to take up a lot of my time, too. So, but now that we got all the important stuff out of the way, now, how about those blessings? I guess I'm not, all right, I get up. There you go. There you go. So it is hard to fill a cup that is already full, all right, full of ourselves, full of our worldly desires, all right, full of everything that we're seeking on ourselves. This, we have life-giving, happiness, richness, blessing, beati juice, and we fill ourselves up with something that leads to anger, anxiety, depression, uh, type 2 diabetes. But, you know, seriously, like, this stuff... That's nev- not going to enrich our lives. And he's saying, you got to empty that cup, right? It's hard to fill a cup that is already full. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're never going to hunger and thirst when we're so full of that other stuff. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And why? Because they will be filled. They will be filled with this, the life water, the biati juice. All right? So, in summary, I just want to go over a couple of things that we talked about today, just so that it's clear. Salvation, power, and blessings come from God alone, not ourselves, all right? And we're going to put up uh, a couple of um, important points about this. You've got to realize a few things. There's four things that we realize through the Beatitudes. One, in order to become spiritually rich, we must first be spiritually poor, all right? Realize our need, realize our sinfulness. And in order to be happy, we must first be sad, be mournful about our sin and our need, excuse me, mournful enough to change it, all right? In order to be powerful and authoritative, you must first be humble and meek, all right? And in order to be full, you must first be empty, all right? This is not what the world tells us, but it's what he tells us in the Beatitudes, what he tells us leads to the blessings of his kingdom. And these blessings are freely available to all of us, but it's important to recognize that we will not live in the blessings of the kingdom of God if we are constantly pursuing the kingdom of ourselves. It just will not happen, all right? No matter how hard we try, we cannot bless ourselves, all right? No matter how we assert ourselves in our personal lives, our success, or how much we achieve by our own efforts and our own desires, we will only inherit the earth through meekness, all right? Through recognition of our sinfulness and our need for a savior, through emptying out our own selfish efforts and pursuits, and yearning for and seeking to be filled by him. It's the only way it's going to do it. And if we die to that kingdom of self and pursue him, he says we already are blessed. 
These aren't future tense. It's not blessed will be. It's like blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness. That salvation, that power and blessings, they're there for us. They're right there for us. We just have to pursue them and put down the pursuit of our own kingdom. Amen. So I want to invite the uh, band up, if they could, and we're going to reflect over a few things that we talked about today. Just a few questions that I'd like us to ask ourselves as we go forward. All right, a few questions that we, that we want to go through. Um, number one, what do you need to empty out of your cup to allow room for God's blessing? All right, is it sin that you're hanging on to? All right, is it religious zealotry in your political beliefs? Is it constant focus on promoting yourself, building up yourselves online to others, seeking feedback and approval from others from what you put out online? What do you need to empty out of your cup to allow for God's blessing? Secondly, is there sin you haven't mourned? Sin where you haven't gotten down and beaten your chest and say, man, God, I am tired of this. I want it out. I need your strength to change it. Is there sin you haven't mourned? Are you too quick to move past? Saying, yeah, everybody's got a porn addiction. It's not a big deal. Where is the sin that you haven't mourned yet? Think about that. Number three, in what ways are you trying to assert your strength or fix problems out of your own power? And how might God be calling you to be more meek? You know, in what ways are you putting those questionable pictures out there to get the attention to solve what you see as that problem or, or building yourself up in this way to make sure you get the approval to solve the, that mental health issue you're going through? In what ways are you trying to do it all on your own, all through grabbing your own piece of the kingdom? And where do you need to be more meek? Uh, number four, in what ways do you look to others to boost your self-esteem instead of hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness? What ways do you look to the other's approval to the likes, to the feedback that you get from others and how much of your worth do you sink into that? All right. Where do you need to hunger and thirst more for God's righteousness and not your own or not the approval of others? And finally, finally, are you tired of trying to find joy by following the world's example? Are you ready to admit your spiritual neediness, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time and not getting caught up in the way that the world wants us to snatch our own kingdom. So I just want you to think about these things. The band's going to play. I want us to reflect on this. I want to say thank you for allowing me to share this word and the pursuit of the blessings of God with you this morning. Amen. God bless.